We're going to be reading um, from Ruth chapter 1. This is the first in our um, series on Ruth, and the, and the series is called From Refuge to Royalty. Refugee to Royalty. So Ruth chapter 1, it should be in your Bible, um, page 267. 267. Okay. And it reads, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi, and the name of his two sons were Marlon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about 10 years, both Marlon and Kilian also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you would find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye and they wept aloud and said to her, we will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, it is more bitter for me than for you, because the Lord's hand has turned against me. At this they wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to go back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Lord Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. 
So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law. Arriving in Bethlehem, as the barley harvest was beginning, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So I've really been looking forward to this um, series on the book of Ruth as we've been looking ahead in the, in the schedule. But I must confess, as I've been preparing for today, I've been plagued by an earworm. I don't know if you ever get that, a song completely stuck in your head and you can't move on from it. I'm getting some, some enthusiastic nods there. <clears throat> so <laughs> I think it's because one of the characters has a four-syllable name and we place the emphasis on the second syllable. And what that means is every time I hear the name Elimelech, in my head, I'm singing that to the tune of a whim away. Now, if you're of a particular age, that will, that will resonate with you. And uh, they say that a problem shared is a problem halved. I suspect this problem shared is a problem multiplied. And you will find yourself washing up, Elimelech, Elimelech, doing your teeth, waking up at three o'clock in the morning, Elimelech, Elimelech. It's the gift that keeps on giving. You're welcome. Okay, so today we are thinking about how we respond to times of suffering. And we're going to think about it in four ways. We're going to think about Naomi's response, Ruth's response, our response, and God's response. So let's set the scene. In the days when the judges ruled... Is that simply a pin in a timeline, telling us roughly when these things happened? A bit like me saying, back in 2015. But what if I say, back in 2020? Oh, suddenly, then all sorts of memories come back, don't they? Rationing loo roll, queuing for the supermarket, missing loved ones. It's more than simply a pin in a timeline. Back when, in the days when the judges ruled, points to a particular point in Israel's history which was really um, oppressive. There was lots of abuse and violence. And there was a pattern of God's people turning away from God, then being oppressed by other peoples, turning back to God in repentance, God bringing about deliverance and everything being okay for a while until, you guessed it, people turned away from God again. As we're told repeatedly in the book of Judges, in those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. And that, by the way, is not a good thing. <laughs> um, so it's within this context that Elimelech and his family, it really is the gift that keeps on giving, I tell you, um, leave for Bethlehem due to a famine. They live for a while in Moab. So you'll see on this slide, I know it's the writing's quite small, but you'll see um, that, that journey going from Bethlehem to Moab and then a reverse journey um, going the other way when obviously um, Naomi and Ruth head back there. And we think it's probably about a seven-day journey on foot. Obviously, some of that is through mountainous um, areas and they're having to cross the River Jordan as well. So it's not an easy journey. Ooh. That was magical, wasn't it? Um, okay, Moab was one of um, Israel's ancient enemies. There are warnings in the Bible not to marry a Moabite because they might bring about corruption. Yet, when Elimelech dies, both of his sons marry Moabites. Um, 
and then the sons die too, leaving just Naomi and the two daughters-in-law. Things look bleak, but God has a plan. Naomi left Bethlehem in famine, but she arrives back as the barley harvest is beginning. There is the hope of harvest. So how does Naomi view God's hand at work in her situation? Listen to what she says. The Lord has turned against me. The Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. Hardly a victorious testimony, is it? But notice what she doesn't do. She doesn't say, well, there isn't a God. Often when people experience suffering, they conclude God simply doesn't exist. Or perhaps you've heard people say to you, if your God was so loving, he'd stop all of this suffering. But actually, Naomi believes that God has the capacity to be good, loving, and generous. It's hard for us to see that in our um, NIV reading, Um, but the clue for us is in verse 8, when Naomi prays that prayer of blessing over Ruth and Orpah. May the Lord show you kindness. That word kindness is hard to translate into English. We don't have a similar word. The um, the Hebrew is hesed, and I've probably completely butchered that pronunciation, that hesed, which means devoted, unchanging, committed, covenantal love, love without an exit plan. Here is Naomi amidst her suffering and grief, praying that God would show committed, loving kindness, promised loving kindness to two outsiders, two women who fall outside of the boundaries that God has set. Two people who would have been seen actually as enemies of God's people. Yet this is the prayer that Naomi prays. So it doesn't sound to me as though Naomi believes God to be a bit of a meanie. It sounds as though she believes God will be a good, generous, and gracious God, even to outsiders. So I think what we see in the way that Naomi is talking about her suffering is lament. We see lament through the Bible. We don't like to camp out on it too long because it's not very comfortable. But actually, it's a really helpful and biblical thing to do. In the book, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, which is all about the Psalms of Lament. The author sets out a process or a pattern of lament. And I'd really recommend, you know, if you feel like you're going through times of suffering, this may be something that's helpful for you. And the pattern is to turn, complain, ask, and trust. Turn, complain, ask, trust. So not turning away from God in our suffering, which is often a temptation for us, but turning to God, bringing our pain to him, complaining, explaining to God why things are so difficult, why we're finding things so hard, and then asking for his help, and finally trusting. Not trusting that he's necessarily going to do everything that we want him to, but trusting that he remains true to his nature, his character. 
My sense is that what we're witnessing with Naomi and the things that she's saying about God is not that that's supposed to be setting out for us a way of understanding how God is at work in her situation, but we're witnessing her trying to process her pain, trying to make sense of what's going on for her. We don't always know why these things happen, do we? As much as we might want a nice, neat and tidy package, we don't always understand the reason behind things. I would generally lean towards, when we're thinking about suffering, I would generally lean towards saying that God might have allowed suffering into a situation, rather than saying that God has instigated that. But that might still raise questions, but why? And the answers may not always be clear. So Naomi laments. She doesn't dismiss God, she complains. We don't know quite how her process of loss unfolds, but we do know that she arrives back in Bethlehem as the barley harvest is beginning. There is the hope of harvest. And so we come to Ruth, who makes this huge commitment, doesn't she? Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. This is not a commitment which expires at the point that Naomi dies. Ruth will be buried where Naomi is buried. Now, Ruth could have remained in Moab, couldn't she? She could have remarried, had children, stayed with her friends and family, and everything that's familiar to her. Yet she chooses to take a path which, for all she knows, is going to lead to suffering, pain, poverty, and obscurity. It's not going to be an easy ride. It will be bad enough for Naomi, and she's traveling back to be with her own people. But Ruth is a Gentile. And not just a Gentile, she's a Moabite, an enemy of God's people. She will be the outsider. She will be the other. So we have to assume then that Ruth has experienced something in Naomi and Naomi's God, which means that the bleakness she's about to enter into pales by comparison to what she has found. It reminds me of some verses in, um, in John's Gospel where a number of Jesus' disciples are turning away from him and Jesus looks to his very close disciples and he says, do you want to leave too? Simon Peter replies, to whom would we go? You have the words of eternal life. Or what about Paul saying, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I count them garbage, garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Ruth has discovered something in Naomi and her God 
that she is desperate not to be parted from. I wonder if we can say the same. Do we treasure knowing God as Ruth does? What is it that we are clinging to, holding fast to? What is it that we are gluing our lives to? And this isn't just a commitment to Naomi and her God, it's also a commitment to God's people. Are we holding fast to and committed to God's people? Motley bunch though we are. It's incredible loyalty that Ruth shows to Naomi, who, let's be fair, is not a barrel of laughs to be around just at the moment. John Piper puts it like this. Naomi painted the future black, and Ruth took her hand and walked into it with her. Sam Wells, the vicar of St. Martin in the Fields in London, writes a lot about how we can help other people, and he puts it into four categories, that we can work for them, we can work with them, we can be for them, or we can be with them. So to work for someone might be to clean their house for them. To work with someone might be to clean alongside them in their house, to get their house sorted out. To be for them might be to advocate in order that they access the help that they're entitled to in order to keep their house clean. To be with them might simply be about sitting with them amidst all of that chaos and just focusing in on them. And that's what Ruth is doing. She remains with Naomi, even in the darkness and despair. So let's move on to think about our response to pain. Naomi and her family leave Bethlehem because there's a famine. Empty cupboards, empty tummies. But she returns back to Bethlehem, describing herself as empty in another way, empty of the fruit of her womb, empty of her family. What she had, she now lacks. I wonder if you can relate to that. I wonder if you've ever had times of emptiness yourself, of things you once had being lost. You might even be feeling that acutely today as we mark Father's Day. There may be people here who really mourn the loss of um, their father or a father figure. Or perhaps even longing for things that you've never had. How do we make sense of these things? How do we process our pain? Imagine a treasure map. Um, We've got a slide here. So, sometimes in our struggles, we are aiming for X marks the spot of comfort. Make this suffering stop. It's not comfortable, I don't like it, Lord. Make it change. And that's completely understandable, isn't it? We all want to be comfortable and not have to be struggling. But that isn't always the destination that God has in mind for us. 
Often, God, in his hesed, in his committed loving kindness towards us, because he wants the very best for us, is not seeking our comfort so much as our conformity. Our conformity to his good, pleasing, and perfect will, and conformity to the likeness of Jesus. And that's plotted in a very different part of the map. So if we're seeking the destination of comfort, and God is seeking the destination of conformity, it's no wonder sometimes that we can feel confused and frustrated in those situations. But God is looking at that map from a very different perspective. I know that this doesn't take away the pain, I'm not suggesting that for a moment, but perhaps there's some reassurance in knowing that God has the fuller picture and that he wants the very best for us. And so to God's response to our suffering. If we go back to the writings of Sam Wells I mentioned earlier, he suggests that the most, most helpful and powerful thing that we can do for someone often is simply to be with. And he explains that's what we celebrate at Christmas. Emmanuel, God with us. He is the companion who remains when all else might fall away. We are never left alone. God will not always leave us without suffering, but he will always be with us in our suffering. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. God alone knows why we encounter the specific suffering that we do. Perhaps God is allowing those challenges into our lives in order to draw us closer to himself or to make us more like Jesus. But who knows if it isn't that a non-Christian is watching your suffering, observing how you deal with it, how you trust God, how you turn to him in prayer, and they come to faith as a result of observing that. And imagine that because of that, their children and their children's children are raised in the Christian faith, and generations later, God uses one of them to spark a revival. We would never know that this side of eternity. What if, I was joking before about the earworm being the gift that keeps on giving, but what if the fruit of our suffering really is the gift that keeps on giving. Naomi felt that she was empty and that God had afflicted her, yet they arrive back in Bethlehem. At the time the barley harvest is beginning, <laughs> there is the hope of harvest. And it's hope not just for Naomi and for Ruth, it's a sign of hope even for us. And I'll try to touch on this without spoiling the next few weeks. You see, it's at the harvest time that God brings about fullness of food. It's at the harvest time that God 
starts the union, just the start of a beginning of a union, which will bring about fullness of family. And it's at the harvest that those beginnings of a union will be part of God's plan of redemption, not just for Israel, but for Gentiles too, for you and for me. Naomi and Ruth could never know what part of a puzzle their stories would play, how their experiences would form beautiful threads in the tapestry of God's redemptive plan. Because Ruth, a Gentile, an outsider, is listed in the family tree of Jesus himself. Ruth is the outsider being brought within. In the time the judges ruled, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. But a story was unfolding which would bring to birth the king of kings. The king of kings who would empty himself in order that we might know fullness of life. Not necessarily comfort, but fullness of life. This king of kings truly is the gift that keeps on giving. There is the hope of harvest. For us, this harvest might be about Christ-likeness, becoming more like Jesus, bearing the fruit of the Spirit. The harvest might be that ripple effect that enables us then to be with people as they're going through their darkest times. It may be to see others come to faith, a harvest of the soul. The harvest might be about pieces of a puzzle, threads woven in a tapestry that spreads out through generations into eternity and which we will know nothing about here and now. But we can trust that there will be a reason for our suffering, that God will redeem those experiences and work all things together for good. There is the hope of harvest. Let's pray. Loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for your committed, loving kindness towards us. We thank you, Lord, that you care deeply about everything that's going on in our lives, everything that we've experienced to this point, everything that we will experience in the future. We thank you that you never leave us alone in that. Lord, I pray that even now, you would minister to those parts of us that are hurting and experiencing suffering. Would you bring about restoration, Lord? Would you bring about the reassurance that you are at work? Lord, we look to you. Pray that you draw us ever deeper in our walk with you. Maybe you know you in such a close and intimate way. We pray in Jesus' name.
Amen.